when my kids were little, uh, so I have three sons, three, and uh, the oldest is 37 now. Um, so, and you're thinking, you look way too young, <laughs> right? Okay, so and my youngest is 22, um, but when my kids were little, they had this habit uh, that I wanted to break them up, break them of this habit, and it was, I'm thirsty. Any, any of your kids ever say that? I thought, I'm, this started to kind of, I don't like, I don't like this, um, I, I don't like the way they're presenting that at all. So, I, I, so when they would say, I'm thirsty, I would say, oh, that's interesting. And they kind of give me a funny look, and then they would say, I'm thirsty. And I would say, yes, I heard you the first time. <laughs> and, then for, and then eventually they got it. They needed to say, may I have a glass of water? May I have something to drink? Okay, so now you know I'm kind of a tough dad, right? (laughs) But I thought it was important that they ask for what it is specifically what they wanted. I wanted them to express the need appropriately and not to issue a complaint. That's the first reason. And then secondly... I wanted them to learn that their father delights in meeting their every need. Now, I couldn't meet their every want, nor do I think I should. But I wanted them to know I delight in meeting their needs. The verse that we already looked at, Matthew 7 and 8, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus uh, said in John 14, verse 12, Verily, truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Because I am going to the Father. So if I had kind of a a, a goal for this morning for each of you, it would be not only that you would ask, but that you would begin to ask bigger. A lot bigger. I think, and, and I'm speaking from my own life experience, I think that I have a tendency to ask too small. And I think the Lord would have us to ask so much, so much bigger. Um, how many of you know who John Wimber is? Okay, not very many. I'm finding that it's been a long time. I keep on forgetting how many gray hairs that I have. But if you don't know who John Wimber is, how, be, how many of you know who the Vineyard Churches are? Just all of you know who Vineyard Church is, right? It's a, it's a worldwide movement. And the, the headquarters where it really started is right here in Anaheim. Uh, right on La Palma off of Lake, uh, Lakeview or, and uh, Imperial Highway, closer to Imperial Highway. Vineyard movement, we, we sing vineyard songs all the time. So if you're not even familiar with the church, you, we sing lots of vineyard worship songs. Um, I'm sure you do here at Crossway as well. So I want to just read something to you that I think will really help us to kind of, to kind of open up our, our, our time. It's a story from uh, a book... Uh, called, and I want to commend this book to you, called Surprised by the Voice of God. 
by Jack Deere. Jack Deere, a former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and goes through a, quite a wonderful transformation of his own understanding of who God is. Um, then, when he left uh, DTS, he served for a couple of years at the, the Vineyard Church in Anaheim. So, in this book, he's telling a story. And here's a story he talks about John Wimber in the early days. My friend John Wimber, though he can, uh, though he, can he, though can remember exactly when he was taught to read the Bible like this. He was 29. He and his wife Carol had just recently accepted Christ at a home Bible study. Until then, John had managed to live his whole life with almost no exposure to the church, the Bible, or religious people. Christianity was a whole new experience for him. But in recent weeks, he had come to love the Bible and began to devour the New Testament. The man who led the Wimbers to Christ told them they should begin attending church. The next Sunday, Carol dutifully got her four children ready for the family's first worship experience. Even though they had never done it before, they instinctively knew what to do. They got up late, had an argument, and drove to the church angry. Without realizing it, they had already fallen into the typical Sunday morning pattern for American church-going families. <laughs> Arriving late, they sat toward the back. The congregation sang a few hymns with outdated uh, melodies. The singing was so out of tune, it hurt John's ears. Wimber was, was and is a gifted musician. He had been the arranger and producer of the early music for the Righteous Brothers. Okay, who knows who the Righteous Brothers are? Wow, more than Vineyard Churches. Okay, got it. <laughs> we got some work to do here, Paul. <laughs> the minister proceeded to deliver a rather passionless 40-minute sermon, and church was over. As soon as they were outside, John started to light up a cigarette, but Carol made him put it back. Do you see anybody else smoking around here? You're not supposed to smoke in church, she chided. In those days, John was a chain smoker, and he thought it strange that no one else was smoking. In fact, the whole experience seemed strange to him. But he decided to come back because he had been told Christians were supposed to go to church, no matter how boring it was. So the Wimbers became churchgoers. John also became a voracious Bible reader. Unlike church, the scriptures excited him. They filled him with hope and longing. They brought him into contact with a God who could do anything, even raise the dead. He began to notice a significant difference between the church he attended on Sunday and the Bible that he read every day. The Bible seemed normal. The church seemed weird. This impression was strengthened when, after a Sunday service, one of the elders looked across the lawn and, figuring John was a newcomer, walked over to him and said, Brother, have you been washed in the blood? With a quizzical look on his face, John replied, Yuck, when do they do that around here? 
Finally, after weeks of reading a miraculous Bible and attending monotonous religious services, John walked up to one of the lay leaders and asked, when do we get to do the stuff? What stuff? asked the leader. You know, the stuff here in the Bible, said John, as he opened the New Testament and pointed to the Gospels. You know, like the stuff Jesus did, raising people from the dead, healing the blind and the paralyzed. You know, the stuff. Well, we don't do that anymore, the man said. You don't? No. Well, what do you do? What we did this morning. John says, for that, I gave up drugs. John was incredulous that the experience of the people of God today was so different from the experience of the people in the Bible. However, church leaders were able to get him over his disappointment. The key was just not to expect too much. It's a humorous story, and it's a tragic story. Just don't expect too much. What is the stuff in your life that you are asking God for? What is the stuff this week that you could have asked God for something huge? Something way out of the ordinary. Something audacious because it was so big. What is the stuff that God needs to do that you need to ask him to do? Just got back a few weeks ago from uh, a trip to Japan. I had a team. There were nine of us on the team. And we went to do a two-day workshop, about a 16-hour workshop on a Saturday and a Sunday. And then the two days after that, we did 24 healing prayer appointments with leaders uh, that were there in this bigger community. People came in from different parts of Japan, but mostly around Tokyo area. And, the, and our friends that invited us to come to Japan, they said, the church in Japan, by the way, did you know that less than 1% of the population in Japan is Christian? It's one of the toughest mission fields in the world. In fact, sometimes Japan is called the graveyard for missionaries. It's tough. When I was there a couple of years ago, as I even walked the streets, you could feel how people are so repressed, how they have to keep things bottled in. And our friends went there to start a, a ministry to help uh, uh, with the suicide rate. The, it's called suicide is a lie, but there is hope. The hope, of course, is in Jesus. But people commit suicide in this gorgeous, modern country because there's hopelessness inside. And so our friends said, we need to see people get healed. We need to see miracles for the church to have any impact in Japan. <laughs> and because they live in an area that's kind of what I call the Colorado Springs of Japan, where a lot of the Christian ministries headquarter, 
Um, so those are the people that we were, wanted to talk to. Those are the people that we wanted to share, that our God is big and that the gospel has power. And not just the power of salvation, but the power for God to show up and do incredible things if we'll just ask him. And so I was even forced a little bit out of my comfort zone because um, I was asked, make sure you do plenty of demonstrations in the workshop. (laughs) So I'm going, wow, Lord, um, you know, it's my reputation, but it's yours too. It's up to you. <laughs> you know, you bring the guys from the United States, they expect to see something, right? And it was, but it was something because the, we just got into the workshop, and in my notes, it was like, okay, demonstration here, okay. <laughs> so I would say, okay, who would like prayer? It's time to pray for somebody. Is there anybody that's hurting now? Who can we pray for? I mean, we could we pray for somebody with a, a kidney problem, and I don't know if the prayer for that was healed, but, but there's certain aches and pains you can know right away. That's what we wanted. And so we just started bringing people up. I got out of the way and let the prayer team pray. Simple prayers. Nothing that will ever make headlines on YouTube. Just simple. I, would call, I called them boring prayers. Because you see, it's never about us. It's always about who our God is if we'll ask. So we prayed for about nine pastors, missionaries, leaders of the church. And like all but one got an immediate result. We had one guy that said, we said, so what's what's the problem? He goes, I can only lift my shoulder this high. Oh, it hurts. Okay. Well, let us pray. This was the team member, not me. I just got out of the way. And so just gentle, lay hand, prayer. How does it feel now? It feels feels better. Is it completely, the pain all gone? Notice, let's just pray again. So I prayed again. Pretty soon he's going like this. It's gone. It's gone. Later on during the workshop, I said, oh yeah, do you have a question? He goes, no. I said, oh, you're just, you're just trying it out, aren't you? Because they're going like this through the rest of the workshop. He's so excited. We had a number of those. Now, if that could happen in Japan, with less than 1% of the people of faith, what about here? Even since I got back from Japan, I said, Lord, there's just been too many times somebody's been hurting, and I've said, I've got an aspirin, rather than, may I pray? A couple of days ago, one of our, the staff members that I work with uh, was getting up like this, and I said, are you okay? And she said, no, she says, my back hurts. And I said, um, why don't we can pray quickly? And she says, oh, it's always been this way. And I said, well, it shouldn't always be that way. Do you mind if we pray? And so um, we prayed briefly. I didn't even touch her because it was a lady. I didn't want to do that. I said, this is pray. And she sent me a text. She says, it hasn't hurt ever since we prayed together. <sighs> how, does, how does God answer prayer? If you want to, we can, you can fill in your, your blanks. How does God answer prayer? I promise you that if you ask, God will answer your prayer. And he will answer in one of three ways. He will answer yes. We love the yes answer. He will answer yes. We got a lot of yes answers. I think we get a lot of yes answers when we ask. He answers yes. He answers later. Sometimes he doesn't answer like it's for now, 
but sometimes it is a yes, but for later. Um, if you're taking notes, write down Psalm 39.7. Psalm 39.7 says, And now, Lord, for, for what do I wait? And now, Lord, for what do I wait? David says, My hope is in you. You see, when we ask, it points us to God. When we ask, it's, it's not, I am thirsty, but it's, may I have something to drink? May I have? Because you're a father who delights in answering and giving me what I need. And then he answers, better. He answers, better. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that, that whole section there where the Apostle Paul is talking about the thorn in the flesh. You know that. You, everybody knows that story pretty much, right? And Paul, who's, who's, who prays for people, they get miraculous healings. When he's praying for himself, something's not happening. It's not happening. And so he's pressing into God. And by the way, have you noticed that when we ask, it forces us to press into God. We start to seek his face in a brand new way. And so that's what happened to Paul. He started pressing into God. And what's the answer that he got? He says, I'm going to just read part of this. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me this thorn in the flesh. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. What's his response? Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. He got something better. This is an example of Paul was asking for this and the Lord is saying, it's good. It's good that you're asking. But Paul, I want to give you more than you're asking for. You're asking small. I've got something more for you. I've got something better. All right, the way we ask. The way we ask. The way we ask is, reveals a lot of things about us. And so I just want to walk us through uh, some of these. First of all, the way we ask reveals our inner conversation. The way we ask reveals our inner conversation. By the way, did you know that you're always, you're always having an inner conversation? Always. Right now, you're really not listening to me. You're really listening to your own inner conversation. When I walked up here, you said, hmm, some of you said, hmm, nice shirt. <laughs> right? Come on, some of you did. <laughs> so he said no. <laughs> um, but there's always something you're processing, right? You're asking yourself, do I really believe that? What's mm, you're kind of doing? We're all, all of us, all the time, all the time. Not just this kind of an inner conversation, but there's all kinds of messages that we are uh, conversing within ourselves that help us to see the world the way we see it. The, that defines the way. We, that defines the truth about how we see the world and how we feel about others and, and especially how we feel about ourselves. That inner conversation could be one of our biggest problems. If that inner conversation is filled with negativity and if it's filled with untruth, especially about who we are and about who God is. Uh, the, 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 the story in John, uh, Jesus is... is uh, in Jerusalem, and, and he's going to come, and he's going to uh, go to the pool of Bethsaida, 
And do you know the story about the, the paralytic man who had been paralyzed for 38 years? Do you know the story? If, if you don't know it, we don't have time to look at it in, in the detail. But he comes to a guy for 38 years. He's been there at the pool. He's been there because the, 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 it was kind of a... Um, the, the folk folk tale was, I'm not sure if it was true, but the folk tale was the people there at the pool believed that when the water was stirred, that must have been an angel that stirred the water, first person in gets healed. So Jesus asked this man, he comes right up to this man, paralyzed for 38 years, he asks him a closed-ended question. You know what a closed-ended question is, right? It requires a yes or a no answer. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the man answers, not yes, not no. He begins to say, no one is here to take me into the water. What did Jesus do? He revealed his inner conversation. That inner conversation of negativity. The solution was standing right in front of him, and he missed the solution. But then Jesus healed him anyways. Because he loved him. He had compassion for him. And he wanted to heal him. All right. Second thing. The way we ask reveals the quality of our faith. Matthew 17, 20 says, And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. I, I really liked that Jesus did this. He's not asking me to have big faith. He's just only asking me to have this, this little tiny bit of faith. Enough faith to make the ask. By the way, when we pray for somebody, have you noticed, um, uh, I'm, and I'm careful about this, and in and, and our workshop that we do, we call our workshop Healing in the Kingdom. In our workshop, we make sure never to shift or what I call goofy prayer, goofy theology. What if somebody doesn't get healed? Where, who do we blame? Where, how, do, how does this work, right? But one, cause, Because people can get damaged in prayer, I found. Especially if we don't get the answer that we thought we... And, and, we, and we, we have to kind of like... We sometimes think, well, we have to explain it, and we don't. But I can tell you this, that if I was praying for one of you and you didn't have faith, I'll just lend you some of mine. See, faith is present someplace, but it is borrowed from somebody else. The pressure is never on us to have enough faith. It's a beautiful thing. All right, next one. The way we ask reveals the, our current level of contentment and willingness to settle. Notice this, um, this quote from uh, Soren Kierkegaard. People settle for a level of despair they can tolerate and call it happiness. Ah. People settle for a level of despair and they call it happiness. I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be me. I don't want to be a person who settles. Okay, let's talk about contentment for a minute. Because the Apostle Paul talks about contentment in Philippians chapter 4. And he says, uh, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity in any and every kind 
circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let me say this. It's a good thing to be content. But we mustn't let contentment get in the way of our asking. Does that make sense? They both exist. They both exist. We can be content, but that should not get in the way of us asking. What is contentment? Contentment is wanting what we have. Contentment is wanting what we have. It's not about simply settling and shutting up. Contentment has its own domain as it did for Paul. Paul could be in terrible circumstances and be content in those circumstances. But when we're in that situation, it doesn't mean that it should keep us in a posture of settling in a level of despair and then just calling it happiness. That's not what he's speaking about. What is it that God is asking you to ask for? What are you willing to ask for? The next one is, the way we ask reveals how we manage our expectations. How we manage our expectations. Jesus said in John 14, Believe me that I am in the Father and my Father in me. Otherwise believe because of the works, the works themselves. Truly, truly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Have I seen it completely the way Jesus did it? I have not. Have I seen it in the way the apostles did it in the book of Acts? You know, so far my shadow has not healed anybody. But I'm still believing what Jesus said. And I'm believing that he's calling me to a way of life where I have an aspirin handy and I pray first before I hand the aspirin. Does that make sense? See, it's not an either-or situation. And when we've seen people, we've prayed for people that are on medications, we've never said to somebody, stop taking your, your prescription medications. Never. We wouldn't do that. What we would say is, hey, go back to your doctor and have them do another checkup. See what he says. Kind of like what Jesus did when he would heal somebody. What do you, what do you say sometimes? You say, go show yourself to the priest. Go show yourself and, and see if they'll declare you clean now. Okay, the next one is the way we ask reveals our past experiences and our disappointments. Some people are, have been disappointed by things in the past. So because of that, we simply choose not to ask. Disappointment can really be a, can work against us and ex past experience can work against us. We have to be careful about that. Next one is this. The way we ask reveals how important something really is to us. How important. There's a, there's a parable in Luke, 15, uh, Luke 11, beginning at verse 5. It's about the, the friend who comes and knocks on the door late at night and says, I, I need some help. I have an unexpected visitor. Can you help me out with some food? I'm caught off guard. And the friend inside says, already in bed. Kids are already tucked in. <coughs> of course, the whole family <coughs> tucked in together. It would have been a lot of work. The friend just kept on knocking and said, really need your help. 
and he got what he needed. Why is Jesus telling this story? He's telling this story because he's saying that's a model for us. See, the question he's always wanting to elevate in us is how bad do you want it? And are you willing to pursue relationship with me in your asking? Because that's very important to him. One more. The way we ask reveals what we believe about what God is really like. This is perhaps the most important point. If you look at Matthew 25 in these verses, maybe a little bit of above verse 24, there's the parable that Jesus tells about a master who distributes talents. Remember this? Ten talents, five talents, one talent. And he says, I'm going to go away. Here's what I have that's yours. Now go invest it. When I get back, I'm going to check on you to see how you did with what I gave to you. And the three of them said, okay. They all understood the rules. And so the master leaves for a while, comes back, and he starts with the one with ten. How did you do? The first one says, I doubled what you gave me. What does the master say? Good job. Faithful servant. Enter into my joy. Second one, you know the story, right? Five, comes back. What did you do with it? Five more. Wow, great job. Enter into my joy. Last one. Now the last one, we got to listen carefully to his response. So I gave you one. What would you do with it? And how does he respond? He says, and the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. What? What? That's who you think I am? You think I'm a hard man? Is that what you think of me? I was generous to you. I didn't give you too much so that you wouldn't fail. I gave you just the right amount so that you would succeed. And you think I'm a hard man? You don't know me. All right then. If you think that's what I am, go ahead. Just get out of here. You don't want to be in a relationship with me. The way we ask reveals about how we feel about our Heavenly Father. And it's good to sing the song, You're a Good, Good Father. I'm so glad that song was was done this morning. I'm so glad we could engage in that song and say those words. But we got to do more than sing the words. We got to do more. We got to know the God that we're singing about and act as if he were so good that he is dying to pour out for us, that he is dying to demonstrate his goodness and his love and his affection and his approval. He's dying to do that for every single one of us today. Do you know who I am? 
You thought I was hard? And you don't know who I am. Most important reason to ask big is because of who he is. If there's any father wounding that we carry, and most people carry a father wound, let's address it. Let's lean into that and receive the healing of the Lord for our father wounds. If we have a mother wound, that's the big one for me, more than a father wound. Let's address it and get healed from our mother wounds so that we, that we don't assume, even at a subconscious level, that our heavenly father is like our earthly fathers. Whatever that inner conversation is about who God the Father is, if it's not who he really is, then we got to burn those ideas to the ground and start over. Because he is nuts about you. He's got a thing for you. He's not only a good, good father, somebody else's father. He is good to you. And he loves you like nobody's business. I, uh, I think the, I think there's a lot, so much at stake here. There's so much at stake for us as individuals. But there's also a lot at stake for us as the church. I received just under two weeks ago an, an email from the president of Church Resource Ministries and I'm on their email list. Some of you know that organization. My wife works for Church Resource Ministries. They're headquartered right here in Anaheim, real close by. The president, his name is San Metcalf, uh, sent out uh, a note. And, and when I read this, I thought, there's so much at stake for the church as well as for each of us individually. Sam writes this. I recently received an email from a young couple who were disturbed, <coughs> agitated. They said they had an increasing number of friends their age who were walking away from God and deserting their faith. And they wanted to know how I would advise them to respond. Unfortunately, I told them their experience is not unusual. Research is saying that the Christian movement in North America is facing serious challenges. Christian faith as expressed in the West often boils down to managing behavior and having good marketing. What this perspective lacks is a genuine experience of the power of God and the reality, the supernatural reality of the kingdom of God in our world today. What would it look like if you and I would begin to ask this question, what would it look like if every day I lived supernaturally? As a natural way of living, what does it look like for us to live supernaturally? And to come to God and to ask big we would just be waiting for opportunities to go to people and to ask big on their behalf. 
It will change us. It will change. I promise you, it will change you. I don't want this to be a part of your lives or anybody that I know that we're a part of this funk of the North American church where people are saying there's nothing there for us. It's just really an insider's club. But why would I, why would I give up my Sunday mornings for that? And are we going to get to a place where we say, I pray not, just don't expect too much, and we'll just keep on doing what we're doing. There's got to be more. I promise you there is. There is. There is. So can we trust God to answer when we ask? The continuation of the passage we opened up with is this. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Heavenly Father, I stand among your people this morning. I present them and I present myself to you. Will you forgive us when we've been so foolish that we didn't think we could ask? We forgive us for every time we asked so small. Lord, help us to see you for who you are. Heal us in our brokenness so that we can see you for who you are and how good, how truly good you are and generous, so generous. Change us, Lord, this week. Would you do that for us? Change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.